The Old Testament reading is Exodus 20, verses 12 through 17. The New Testament reading is 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. Exodus 20, 12 through 17. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. Exodus 20, starting in verse 12. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for the New Testament reading. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. Paul, writing to Timothy, a minister of the Word of God, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Over the past four weeks, we've considered the first four of the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are sometimes referred to as the first table of the law. And this terminology is helpful because it draws our attention to the fact that the first four commandments go together. What unites them? They all have to do with man's relationship to God. How are we to relate to God as human beings? What are our duties before Him? This is the question that the first four commandments answer. One, we are to worship Him alone, knowing that He alone is God. Besides Him, there is no other. Two, we are to worship Him in the way that He says, not with images, knowing that He is a most pure spirit. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of His perfections. Three, we are to have reverence for God. We must not take up His name in vain, for God is holy and will not hold Him guiltless who takes His name in vain. And four, a proportion of time is to be set apart for the worship of God. One day in seven is to be observed as holy unto the Lord. It is a day for rest from our normal work. It is a day for worship. And we know that from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath day was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath day was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. And it is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observance of the last day of the week being abolished. So you can clearly see that the first table of the law, uh, the first four commandments, um, is about man's duty 
in relationship to God. The first table is summarized by the command of Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. Now as we turn our attention to the second table of the law, I want you to see that it has to do with man's relationship with man. How are commandments 5 through 10 related? All of them have to do with the question, how are we to relate to one another as human beings in this world that God has made? We're going to consider each of these commandments carefully in the weeks to come. This has been our custom. We will ask what each of them requires and what each of them forbids. And in brief, the second table of the law teaches us that children are to honor parents. This establishes that honor is to be shown to all men and women in their various positions. Two, murder is forbidden. This forbids the unjust taking of human life and requires us to use lawful means to endeavor to preserve our own life and the life of others. Three, adultery is forbidden. This requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity and heart, speech, and behavior. Four, stealing is forbidden. This requires the lawful procuring and furthering of the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others while forbidding the unjust procurement of wealth. Five, bearing false witness is forbidden. This requires us to maintain and promote truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name especially in witness-bearing. And six, covetousness is forbidden. This requires the pursuit of contentment in our condition. This requires us to maintain a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his. And it should be recognized that, that violations of the other commandments contained within the second table of the law do often flow from a heart that is covetous or discontent. You know, uh, why do... Men murder. For example, there is some covetousness or discontentment in them. Why do they lie often to benefit themselves because there is some covetousness or discontentment within them? As I've said, we're going to look at each of these commandments of the second table of the law in the weeks to come. But today, I wish to speak with you about the usefulness of, of God's moral law. So we're kind of pausing a little bit here in the sermon series. We've considered the first table. We're going to consider the second table in the weeks to come. But right now I would like to talk to you about the usefulness of God's moral law. We've been considering God's laws. We've been learning about what they require and forbid. But here in this sermon I wish to ask the question, what is God's law good for? What is it good for? What are its uses? And brothers and sisters, I hope you can see why this is a very important question to ask. It is one thing to know what God's law is. It's another thing altogether to know how it is to be used. Parents, if you were to give your child a knife as a gift, now that's what all the boys are going to be thinking about for the remainder of the sermon, right? Now, now um, if you were to give your child, uh, your, your son or daughter, a knife as a gift, it's important that they know what it is. They need to know its components. They need to know how it's designed. I understand these things are obvious to most, but the child needs to know the difference between the blade and the handle, don't they? They need to know which side of the blade is sharp. If it's a folding knife, they need to know how the locking mechanism is designed. In other words, they need to know what the thing they are handling is. They need to know what it is. But more than this, they need to know how to use it. I wonder how many fathers have said to their children, it's not a hammer, son or daughter, it's a knife. Okay, do not mistake it for a hammer. Do not misuse this tool. It's a knife, 
not a hammer. Or it's not a chisel, it's a knife. Or be sure to cut away from your hand, not towards it. Or use it to cut this, but never cut that. My point is this, just as it is one thing to know what a knife is, and another thing to know how it is to be used, so too it is one thing to know what God's law is, that is, what it requires and forbids, and to understand its parts. But it is another thing to understand what its uses are. And I'm afraid that many have done great harm to themselves and to others through the misuse of God's law. They understand what it says, they understand what is required and forbidden, but they take up God's law and misuse it, and therefore do great harm to themselves and to others. And so that is why I am here taking some time to address the uses of God's moral law. In previous sermons, I've told you about what God's law is. We've considered what each commandment forbids and requires as we've attempted to get to the heart of the matter. I've even mentioned that in the law that God delivered to Old Covenant Israel through Moses, we find moral, civil, or judicial, and ceremonial laws, these three types of laws. The ceremonial laws given to Israel governed Old Covenant Israel's worship. The judicial laws were given to Old Covenant Israel as a nation to to govern that people civilly. The moral law, which is for all people living in all times and places, was delivered to Israel too. It was contained in the ten words that God spoke to Israel from Sinai and later wrote on tablets of stone. I've even distinguished between moral law and positive law for you. So I have in a very basic and introductory way told you about the various parts or components found within the law of Moses. Here is the law that God gave to Israel through Moses, and there are parts to it. We need to be aware of the parts. We need to understand what God's law is. In this sermon, I wish to speak directly to the issue of the usefulness of God's moral law. How does God use His law in the world now that man has fallen into sin? That is the question. How does God use His law in the world now that man has fallen into sin? And there are three answers to that question. One, God uses His moral law to restrain evil in the world. Two, God uses His moral law to show the world its sin and to drive His elect to Christ through preaching, through the preaching of the gospel. And three, God uses His moral law to sanctify His people, to show them how they are to walk in this world for their good and the glory of His name. So we have these three uses of the law, to restrain evil, to show men and women their sins so that they might run to the Savior through the preaching of the gospel, and to sanctify the people of God. I intended to cover all three of these functions of the law, these uses of the law in this sermon today, but I ran out of space. So today... We are only going to consider the first use, and next Sunday we will consider the other two, Lord willing. What are the uses of God's moral law? The first thing I will say is this. Since the fall of man into sin, God uses His moral law to restrain evil in this world. This is an often forgotten and ignored use of God's moral law. I think we talk more often about the way that God uses His law to drive men and women to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Law and gospel are used to drive men and women to Christ. We we talk about the the moral law of God and its usefulness to sanctify the people of God. These two are more common to us, but I believe that this first use of the law is often neglected. The restraint of evil in the world that comes about 
through God's moral law. We are to remember that God is king over all creation. He is the sovereign Lord of His people. This is true. But we must not forget that He is also the sovereign Lord over even those who do not honor Him as such. He is God Almighty. Nothing is outside of His control. He created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and He does now govern all that He has made. And what is God doing in this world now? What is God doing in this world now? Well, stated very briefly, God, by His grace, is establishing His eternal kingdom. This He is doing through Jesus the Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the means of the proclamation of the gospel. I'll remind you that the establishment of God's eternal kingdom was the goal when God created the heavens and the earth. The establishment of God's eternal kingdom was the goal when God created the heavens and the earth. When God created, He made realms and filled those realms with rulers. Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of creation. And when God made man, He placed him in a garden and offered the eternal kingdom through the covenant of works. Adam was to obey God the King and enter into eternal life. He was to obey God the King and enter into rest. He was to obey God the King and enter into glory. Or to use kingdom language... Adam was to obey God the King, and in so doing, usher in the consummation of the eternal kingdom of God. I'm stating this very rapidly and succinctly, because you've heard this from me before. The kingdom of God was offered to Adam, but it was forfeited. The establishment of the eternal kingdom of God, which is so beautifully portrayed for us at the end of the book of Revelation, was always the goal. We, we know what the end will be. All will be God's kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. We have a picture of it at the end of the book of Revelation, and here I am reminding you that this was the original goal. This is what was offered to Adam. He was to obtain it through obedience to that covenant of works. The first Adam failed to obtain it. The second Adam, Christ the Lord, succeeded. When Adam fell from the state of perfection and into sin by listening not to the voice of the king, but to the voice of that rebel and traitor, Satan, three things happened. One, Another kingdom was born. Before this moment, there was only one kingdom on earth. It was God's kingdom. But after the rebellion of Adam, another kingdom emerged. The kingdom, not of God, but of Satan. The kingdom, not of light, but of darkness. The kingdom, not of heaven, but of this world. This rebel kingdom came into existence when Adam, who was made to be a king on earth, loyal to the king of kings and lord of lords, Yahweh, transferred his allegiance to another. Do you see that is what happened when Adam fell into sin? Here he is in God's temple, in God's paradise. He's to, to live as, as a vice regent, a representative of God on earth, a vassal king. That is to be his role. He's to listen to God's voice. He's to worship and to serve him and to expand his temple, his kingdom to the ends of the earth. But the traitor comes and Adam aligns himself with the traitor instead. Another kingdom emerged in that moment. The second thing that happened was this. God Almighty showed mercy to Adam and Eve by delaying the final judgment. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, they entered into a state of death, and so that threat did in fact come through. But the final judgment was delayed. He showed grace to Adam and to Eve and to their descendants. He promised to defeat the kingdom of Satan and to establish the eternal kingdom the one that was offered to him but lost, in another way. Now it would be obtained not through 
Not through the man Adam, but through the Messiah who would one day be born into the world through the process of human procreation and by the power of God Almighty. He would come to atone for sin, to set His people who are now in bondage free, to usher in the eternal kingdom of God, which He would obtain through His obedience to the eternal covenant. That is, through the Messiah's obedience to the eternal covenant. And when Adam rebelled, God in His mercy delayed the final judgment. That is what I am saying. God, by His grace, promised to redeem Now the third thing that happened when Adam fell from perfection and into sin was that God in His mercy and grace began to uphold and preserve this fallen world while His plans for the redemption of His elect were accomplished. That is the third thing that happened. God in His mercy and grace began to uphold and preserve this fallen world while His plans for the redemption of His elect were accomplished. Of course, God upheld and sustained the created world even before Adam fell into sin. I am not denying that. But here I am saying that something new happened after Adam sinned. If God was to bring the Messiah into the world through the seed of the woman as He promised, then it would be required of Him to preserve the fallen and rebellious human race until all of His redemptive purposes were accomplished. And this He has done. This He will do until all of His sheep are brought into the fold. Indeed, from Adam and Eve, Abraham was born, and he was set apart from the nations. From Abraham, David was born, and from David, Christ was born into the world. Here I am wanting you to see that all of this redemptive history, which is of course the history that Scriptures focus upon, all of this redemptive history that we we have to consider now, could not have happened if God Almighty did not preserve the fallen world. He showed mercy to the fallen world. He upheld it so that His redemptive purposes might be accomplished in and through Christ. So how does God preserve the fallen world? How does He do it? In reality, He preserves the fallen world in more ways than we will ever be able to comprehend. Indeed, we confess that there is a great mystery in this. But in general, we say, first of all, God upholds the natural order of the created world. He upholds the natural world and He sustains it. The sun rises and sets, the rains fall, the seasons come and go, there is springtime and harvest. This will remain until heaven and earth pass away at Christ's coming. This upholding and maintenance of the natural world is owed to the providential care of God. We speak of the the natural order of things as if that's all there is to talk about. No, behind the natural order of things there is the providential care of God. He is upholding the world that He has made. He is even upholding this fallen world now that man has rebelled against Him. This is what the writer to the Hebrew says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is the writer to the Hebrews saying to us? Well, in the beginning God created the world through His Son. And even now God upholds and, abstain, uh, upholds and, and um, sustains the created world by the Son as well. It's marvelous to consider. Um, God providentially upholds the natural world through the eternal Son of God. 
He preserves the natural order of things so that human life may go on. This is in fulfillment to the covenant promises He made with all creation in the days of Noah, when He said, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God was doing this before the days of Noah, of course, but this was a covenant promise delivered to all of creation in the days of Noah. I'm going to sustain the natural order of things while the earth remains, while all of God's purposes are accomplished. And not only does God uphold and preserve the natural order of things, so that life may go on until all His purposes are accomplished, we confess that He does also restrain evil in the world so that humanity does not consume itself. This is a marvelous truth to consider. God not only upholds the natural order of things, God does also restrain evil in the world so that humanity does not consume itself. Again, I will say that God's ways are mysterious. It's impossible for us to comprehend all of the ways that God restrains evil in the world. We know that He sometimes works to frustrate the plans and purposes of wicked nations and men. You know, as I say this, that story about the Tower of Babel comes to mind. Uh, There the people on earth were coming together for wicked purposes, and God frustrated them and scattered them in His mercy. Sometimes God does this, even to this present day. Sometimes He acts in a very direct way in the outpouring of His wrath. A people grows exceedingly perverse, and God judges them in a very direct manner. But even more basic than this is the way that He preserves humanity through His natural and moral law. Men and women have the moral law written on their hearts, remember. Stated differently, men and women, having been made in God's image, they have consciences. Some have badly suppressed and distorted this law that is revealed in nature and that is within them. Some men and cultures have grown exceedingly perverse. Some we may even call psychopaths and sociopaths. Some are degraded even to that point, but most are not. And I am saying that God in His mercy, God in His mercy restrains evil in individuals and in nations so that we are not as bad as we could be. God in His mercy does bless us with systems of governance that are at least somewhat just. The point is this. God in His merciful providence restrains evil in the world. He does this so that we do not consume ourselves. He does this so that His purposes of redemption will be accomplished. So that the gospel might go forth and so that His elect might be brought in. He does this in many ways, one of them being through His upholding and preservation of His moral law and the world He has made. Now believe me, brothers and sisters, I'm keenly aware of the wickedness that exists within the hearts of men. And I'm mindful of the injustices that exist in all of the nations of the earth, including our own. This world is filled with wickedness, and I'm aware of it. But have you ever wondered why it is not worse? Have you ever stopped to consider that question? Why are things not worse? Why have things not completely spiraled out of control? Why are things not worse than they now are? I've noticed that Christians are sometimes troubled by the question, 
why is the world so bad? I think a better question is, why is the world not worse than it is? I think we need to ask that question. Why has the wickedness of man been so restrained throughout the history of the world? And if we consider the scriptures to be true, we must confess that it is God who preserves humanity through the restraint of evil. He holds evil back. He holds the evil one back. He restrains the corruptions that are within individuals. He restrains the corruptions that are within nations. This is God's mercy. He does it so that His redemptive purposes might be fulfilled. One of the ways that He does this is through the preservation of the moral law, which was written on man's heart in the beginning and on stone in the days of Moses, a record of it having been preserved for us most clearly in the Holy Scriptures. Just a moment ago, I reminded you that God covenanted with all creation in the days of Noah to preserve the order of the natural world so that life might go on as He accomplishes His his redemptive purposes. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, He promised. We should also remember that he promised to restrain evil in societies in the days of Noah too, saying, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What is this about? This is God saying to humanity that in your societies, I will require a reckoning for injustice. If a man unjustly sheds the blood of another man, I will require a reckoning for it. It is this principle that evil will be restrained within societies by God Himself. There's much to be said about this text. Indeed, a lot has been said about it in the teaching ministry of this church in the past But for now, I simply want to remind you of God's promise to uphold a degree of justice within societies while seed time and harvest remain. And if there is to be justice, hear me about this, there must be a moral law. If there is to be justice in societies, any at all, there must be a moral law upon which justice is founded. And I'm saying that God in His mercy has preserved it. And He will preserve it until Christ returns to make all things new. The question I have asked is, how does God use His law in the world now that man has fallen into sin? The first answer I'm giving is that God uses His moral law to restrain evil in the world. Notice, I did not say that evil is extinguished by the moral law. The moral law cannot extinguish evil. The moral law cannot extinguish sin. But God does use it to restrain evil in the world. Justice is upheld in nations somewhat. And justice can be held somewhat only because God's moral standard is written on man's heart and embedded within the created order. Men know to one degree or another that children are to honor parents, that murder, adultery, theft, lying, and covetousness are to be avoided. When this moral law flourishes, societies flourish, you see. When this moral law manifests itself in the just laws of a nation, that nation will prosper. But where moral law is disregarded and suppressed in men, and where injustice prevails, societies and nations will crumble. Please hear me. This is also 
one of the ways that God preserves the human race. Societies that are given over to wickedness and injustice will simply not survive. I suppose it is a good example here of the survival of the fittest principle, but one that is often forgotten. Men assume that the wealthy and powerful will prevail, but they will not. Evil men and unjust societies might prosper for a time, but they will eventually crumble and they will fall. Why is this? Because they fight against God. They fight against His natural law. If if God does not judge them directly, they will consume themselves as they bite and devour one another. And as unpleasant as this is to witness, God's people know that God will preserve the world He has made while His purposes of redemption are accomplished, for He has promised. Again, He has said, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning. For the life of man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So here is one way that God uses his moral law in the world today. He uses it to restrain evil in the world until Christ returns. By it, even the unregenerate are able to see the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. By it, even the unregenerate are able to see, uh, discern rather, the way of wisdom. By it, and I am saying by the moral law, societies are able to establish and enforce laws of justice so that men are deterred from doing violence to the person and property of others. God uses His moral law to curb wickedness in the lives of men and in nations. Where there is a disregard for God's moral law, where there is much perversity, the lives of individuals and of societies will crumble, for the way of the wicked does lead to death. But even this, even when men and nations are judged by God as He gives them over to their perverse passions, we can see God's merciful providence in the preservation of the world. That he has made. If this is indeed one of God's, the uses of God's moral law, then what is our obligation as Christian sojourners as it pertains to this use? I have a few suggestions uh, for application here. One, as Christian sojourners, we ourselves must strive to live holy lives in obedience to God's moral law. Individually, in our homes, in our churches, and in our communities. As we do with hearts filled with faith, hope, love, contentment, peace, and joy, it may be that the Lord would draw some to salvation through faith in Christ by the proclamation of the gospel. This is our leading desire, brothers and sisters. This is our highest aim, That God would use us to bring others to faith in Christ and to repentance. But here I am saying that it may also be that the Lord uses us as a preservative within the culture that we live. As those who look in upon us see the wisdom and goodness of God's moral law in us. Are you following me? We are to live in obedience to God's moral law ourselves. And it may be that the Lord uses us to preserve society in some way. As others look in upon us and go, this is the way of life. I see there's wisdom in this. There's goodness in this. Look at all of the good that comes from a life lived in obedience to God's 
moral law, we ourselves must pursue holiness in our lives, brothers and sisters. Two, as Christian sojourners, it is right for us to remind the unregenerate of the moral law that is within them, the moral law that is written on their hearts by nature. We can appeal to the conscience of those not in Christ. The moral law written on our hearts is the same as the one written on theirs. And the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments is also the same. Those in Christ see it very clearly because they have God's Word and they have been regenerated by God's Spirit. The law has been written on our hearts anew and afresh by the Spirit so that we do not only know God's law, but we in fact desire to keep it. Those in the world might only perceive God's moral law dimly. Perhaps it is very dim in some due to the weathering effects of sin but I'm saying that it is there nonetheless. These are image bearers. They have a conscience. And Christian sojourners are right to proclaim the moral law to the world. We must proclaim the gospel too, of course. Again, our highest aim is that men and women, boys and girls, would hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ for the salvation of their souls. But the Lord may also use us to restrain evil in the world in this way, as we appeal to the consciences of our fellow human beings and help them to see the wisdom and goodness of God's moral law. Three, Christian sojourners must also seek to establish and maintain just laws in the societies in which they live as they have the opportunity to do so. And concerning this third point, concerning um, our obligation to pursue justice within our society, I have five clarifying remarks to make, and then I will bring this sermon to a conclusion. Firstly, laws of justice cannot be established and maintained in society without God's moral law. They simply cannot. Justice depends upon moral absolutes. How can a society establish a legal code wherein crimes and their corresponding punishments are stated without a moral foundation to stand upon? And indeed, this is a major problem within our, within our society. God's natural law is being badly distorted and suppressed. And it is no wonder then that injustice is prevailing. Christian sojourners are right to speak up in an attempt to bring moral clarity to the cultures in which we live. Secondly, a Christian sojourner seeking to bring moral clarity to the world and to the culture in which they live had better be sure that they are not hypocrites. Are you with me here? All Christians struggle with sin, that's true. We fail to keep the very law that we have come to love. This is due to the corruptions that remain within us. We should be honest about that. We should magnify our Redeemer, even as we speak to issues of morality within the culture. This is not hypocrisy. But when professing Christians live in unrepentant sin, while speaking perhaps in a harsh and critical way of the sins of others, that is hypocrisy and it's most detestable to the world. The world hates this. And understandably so. So we had better be careful to not be hypocrites. We must pursue holiness as Christians, and when we fall short, we must humbly repent of our sins. So Christians also need to speak to the sins of others, not in a harsh, arrogant, and judgmental way, not in a holier-than-thou manner, but humbly, with love in our hearts. Thirdly, 
As Christian sojourners seek to bring moral clarity to the societies in which we live, and as we seek to promote justice within those societies, we must remember that this is not our highest calling. This is not our highest calling. Christian sojourners must not merely be concerned with the betterment of society. No, we must always maintain an eternal perspective. We must be more concerned with the salvation of souls. We must always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We must be eager and on the lookout for opportunities to testify concerning the mercy and grace of God shown to us in Christ Jesus and to proclaim the gospel of peace. Some Christians might be called to devote themselves to public service. Some might be called to engage in politics. And please hear me about this, not all are. Some are. But even these who are called to public service in this way must maintain their perspective that life in this world and the governments of this world, along with their judicial systems, they're temporary. They're going to pass away. They're not eternal. They'll pass away when Christ comes again. This does not mean that they are unimportant, but it does mean that they are not ultimate. And as Christian sojourners, we must ultimately be concerned with the furtherance of God's eternal kingdom. And we know that His kingdom is not of this world. Fourthly, we must remember that social transformation and the pursuit of justice in society are not the mission of the church. Social transformation and the pursuit of justice in society are not the mission of the church. Now, some of you might think that I've just contradicted myself, but I've in fact been very careful with my words. I have said that Christian sojourners may be used by the Lord to bring moral clarity to society. I have said that Christian sojourners may engage in political service so as to enact and uphold just laws. But here I am talking about the mission of the church. What is the mission that Christ gave to the church with first His apostles and later His elders in the lead? What is the mission of the church, here I am speaking, as an institution? Christ was very clear about this. When he spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. And I want for you to see that this is the commission or the mission given to the church, this is not the mission given to individual Christians to act in isolation from all the rest. This is the mission of the church. The church is to go and proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. Those who profess faith in Christ are to be taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. Those who profess faith in Christ before that even are to be baptized. It is not you as an individual Christian who can do this work. This is the work of the church collective. This is the work of the church as an institution, you see. This is the mission of the church. The members of the church together with the elders in the lead, this is the work we are to do. Here I am saying that social transformation and the pursuit of the justice in society are not the mission of the church, the church must maintain a laser-like focus on this work, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And please hear me about this. If the church would do her job, 
If the church would in fact be faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to baptize those who believe, to administer the Lord's Supper, to discipline according to the Scriptures, and to teach, then Christian sojourners would be well equipped to engage the culture and to serve in the civil realm, perhaps as politicians, lawyers, judges, and the like, should Christ call them to this work. Ironically, when the church as an institution, with its elders in the lead, is distracted from her God-given mission, when she focuses instead on the transformation of culture and on matters of social justice, she fails in two ways. The church as an institution will fail in her misguided attempt to transform culture, for she is not called or equipped for that work. And she will also fail to do what God has called and equipped her to do, namely, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach all that Christ has commanded. The end result of this distraction is that both the church and the culture in which she lives will be worse off. Professing Christians will be immature and even carnal because they have not been taught to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And the culture will be without their witness. Do you see how this happens? The church will be immature and filled with with all manner of corruption, and then the culture will be without their witness. Worse yet, the culture will come to see the church for what it is, carnal, immature, and even hypocritical. They'll come to disdain the church for their hypocrisy. They'll disregard it and the gospel of Jesus Christ that it proclaims. May we as a church be faithful to do what Christ has commanded And may we as Christian sojourners, as individual Christians, be faithful to our individual callings in both the sacred and secular realms. My fifth and final clarifying remark regarding the Christian sojourner seeking to establish and maintain just laws in the societies in which they live is this. If God has called and equipped you to serve in the civil realm in some way, If He has called and equipped you to be a Christian lawmaker, a Christian lawyer, a Christian judge, a Christian law enforcement officer, etc., then it is especially important for you to understand God's moral law. You must know what God's moral law is, what it requires and forbids. You must also understand its uses. As a civil servant you should give special consideration to the use of the law that we have considered this morning. God's moral law is used to restrain evil in the world. God's moral law is the foundation for the just laws of society. You must know that the laws of nations may differ in the specifics depending upon the circumstances, but all must have God's natural and moral law at their core if they are to be just. As we consider, as we continue on in our study of the book of the of the, of the law of Moses. As we continue on in our study of, of, um, of, of the books of Moses, we will eventually encounter the judicial or civil laws which God gave to Old Covenant Israel. And when we do encounter them, we will see that they were in some ways unique. There were some things about the law code that God gave to Old Covenant Israel 
that were unique. I'd like to touch upon that now in order to prepare us for this experience as we move on in the book of Exodus. There were some things about the civil law code which God gave to Israel that were unique to them. For one, some of the civil laws of Israel and their corresponding punishments were unusually strict. Some of the civil laws of Israel and their corresponding punishments were unusually strict. For example, in Old Covenant Israel, persistently rebellious children were to be put to death. Did you know that? In Old Covenant Israel, persistently rebellious children, we might even say extremely rebellious children, were to be put to death. You may go to Deuteronomy 21.18 to read about that. When we encounter Old Covenant civil laws like this, we must ask ourselves, are these civil laws and their corresponding punishments intended for all nations, or were they in some ways unique to Old Covenant Israel? The answer we must give is that they were unique to Old Covenant Israel. Some laws were unusually strict. Why? Why were they unusually strict laws given to Israel? We must remember that Israel had been set apart as a holy nation. God entered into a holy covenant with them. He gave them a holy land where His holy name was to be worshipped. There in that land, the kingdom, the holy kingdom of God was prefigured on earth. Did the civil laws of Israel serve to restrain evil in that nation just as the civil laws of every nation are intended to do? We say yes, but in an extreme way, given Israel's unique place, having been set apart by God as holy, so that through them the Messiah would be brought into the world. Are Are you tracking with me? We see civil laws given to Israel that were in some ways unusually strict. Why? Because this was a holy nation, a nation unlike any other nation ever to exist on planet earth. And here is another thing unique about the civil laws of old covenant Israel. The civil laws of Israel prescribed penalties not only for crimes against persons, but also for violations of the first table of God's moral law. For example, Sabbath breakers were to be put to death in Israel. You may go to Numbers 15.32 to read about that Idolaters were also to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. You may go to Deuteronomy 17.1 to read about that. And again, we must ask the question, were these civil laws intended for all nations? You know, God inspired these laws, did He not? He gave them to Old Covenant Israel, and some would reason in this way. If God inspired a civil law code and gave it to a nation, then it must be, For all nations, because surely it is the best law code ever given, given by the inspiration of God. But that would be flawed reasoning. In fact, we must remember that Israel, again, was a holy nation set apart by God for redemptive purposes. They were given a holy land. His name, His holy name was to be worshipped there. He set His name upon that nation. There was something very, very unique about Old Covenant Israel. So, in Old Covenant Israel, it was not only violations that had to do with the second table of the law that were to be punished by the civil laws, but also violations of the first table of the law were to be punished in Old Covenant Israel. We know that in the fullness of time, the Christ was brought into the world through Israel to atone for sins, to accomplish salvation, and to inaugurate the new covenant. 
the judicial law code of Israel expired with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. Now, why am I saying this? Why am I saying this? Well, in an attempt to make it clear that if you love God's law and wish to see it used to restrain evil in society, then you had better understand what it says and also how it is to be used. It is one thing to understand what it says, what it is. It is another thing to understand how it is to be used. And I am saying that many have done great damage to themselves and to others through the misuse of God's law. Common governments and their common law codes are to be very limited in their scope. They are to be concerned with the upholding of justice amongst men. When violence is done to a person or to their property, then restitution is to be made. Civil governments and their civil law codes are to be concerned with that and with not more in these common nations. In other words, whereas the law code of Old Covenant Israel was concerned with punishing violations of both tables of the moral law, common nations are to concern themselves with violations related to the second table of the law only, while leaving men and women, boys and girls, to worship God according to their conscience. Who is responsible now to promote and maintain the proper worship of God according to the first table of the law? The church. The church is. And the church is to be left free to do its work. The church is to be granted that freedom in the world. The government is not to restrain them in this work. But it is the church's job to promote and uphold and preserve obedience to the first table of the law. Brothers and sisters, if we wish to be used by God in this world to restrain evil, we better understand what the moral law is and how it is to be used. I have one final suggestion for application, brothers and sisters. It's very brief. Would you take comfort in the covenant promises that God made to all creation in the days of Noah? He promised to preserve the natural order of things and to restrain evil in the world so that the human race will endure until all of His redemptive purposes are accomplished and Christ comes again to bring the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This should be a comfort to our souls. God is restraining evil in the world, even now. Though wickedness might seem to prevail, though it might seem to be everywhere, God is restraining evil in the world, even now, for He is sovereign, brothers and sisters. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Though the corruption and evil in the world seem so very great, our Heavenly Father is sovereign still. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your law. We thank you for what it is, for what it requires, and for what it forbids. Help us to use it correctly. Help us to use it even in this way that has been described. Father, we do pray that you would restrain evil in the world through your moral law, which you have written on the heart of man and which is baked into the created order. We thank you that you have made it even more clear to us because you have given us your word. You've written this word on our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, use us in this world, not only to further your kingdom, which is our highest aim, not only to bring others to salvation through the proclamation of the gospel, which is our greatest desire, but, O oh Lord, help us even to restrain evil in the world as you see fit. 
In Christ's name we pray.